everyone. How is it going? Hope you're doing great. Welcome to the Pillars Podcast. Of course, I am Dylan Bowman. And as always, I am so excited to have you here. I've got what I think is another really fun and worthwhile episode here for you today with Flagstaff Ultra Runner, Eric Sensman. Eric and I have been loose friends, I would say, for a few years now, but he is the type of person who I always find myself following and always find myself rooting for as a fan of the sport. It's probably because, as you'll hear, he and I have a ton in common in our backgrounds and I think a similar approach to the great sport of trail and ultra running. So this conversation was really fun. It was wide ranging and deep at times. We discussed Eric's recent marriage to his wife, Jackie. We talked about the loss of his father in 2020 and how that impacted him. And we talked about his progression as an athlete and the highs and lows that always come along the way. Of course, we also talked about his recent second place finish at the Black Canyon 100K and look ahead to the fast approaching Western States 100 coming up in June where Eric will line up for the third time alongside his friends and training partners from the Coconino Cowboys among an incredibly deep field of talented competition. So this is a a packed episode. There's a lot to get to, but before we do get to it, as I sometimes do, I want to just do a quick plug for our app. If you guys are new to the sport or are generally looking for a treasure trove of trail and ultra marathon on information and inspiration, or if you're just looking for a new community to share your trail and ultra journey with, please join us. It has been so fun and we are feeling so energized and inspired by the community so far. You can find the app in the iOS and Android app store. We recently put up some awesome new content, including a nutrition module led by the amazing Alex Borsuk. And just yesterday, put up some content about foot health and pelvic health uh, with our friend and physical therapist, Dr. Claire Bernard Miller. Uh, We have more awesome content coming to the app very soon with more superstar contributors that I am very excited about. So don't miss out. We're also doing a really fun community Zoom call every week for subscribers where we talk about training, where we answer questions, where we host special guests and generally get to know each other all a little better as we try to better navigate this amazing sport and this challenging time in world history. Honestly, I'm having so much fun with this project. I could gush about it all day. Uh, I'm more excited about it than I've ever been. And I want you all to be a part of it. So stay up to date on everything. Don't forget to follow us at Pillars on Instagram or visit pillars.com and sign up for our newsletter. But please do check out what we're doing. We'd love to have you part of this new community and movement. Okay, on with the show. Please welcome the philosophical Mr. Eric Sensman. What are you What are you drinking there? It looks it's like a, a iced coffee. Yeah, iced coffee with mil- with uh, oat milk, but <laughs> it looks real grungy at the bottom. But, a nice yeah. little oat milk latte to power a fun little power conversation. Through, yeah, Eric Sensman, welcome to the podcast, man. It's good to see you. 
Dylan, thanks for having me, man. Well, I, I'll call you D- Debo. I assume everyone knows that that's you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, even my mom calls me Debo. So it's, uh, it's still worthwhile. I, you that's know, I turned great. 35 last week and part of me is like, am I too old to be called Debo anymore? But you know, I think it's, it's I don't think uh, so. Yeah, it's become it's become part of who I am. Right. Where are you broadcasting from, man? Are you in Flagstaff? We're, we're, yeah, live from Flagstaff, Arizona. Here, I'm in my uh, dining room. We, we're fortunate to have some skylights, so you can see some of the yeah the, the sun behind me. Yeah, um, I know. it looks yeah. like a beautiful day. It's shining it on, on your brilliant, uh, amazing, <laughs> amazing hairdo. Well, let's see if we can get a streak. No, not quite. Um, yeah, it's getting warm here, man. It was a uh, seventy yesterday, I think um so starting to heat up isn't that great man yeah it's like full-on spring here in portland too and it's just yeah the the energy is just infectious and yeah especially totally. you know as runners and stuff it's just like the best time ever when we're like yeah. starting to think about especially emerging from a pandemic and hopefully having some competitive ambitions to turn our attention to which yeah. is something that i definitely want to talk to you more about here over the course of our conversation but i wanted to start in a more uh, sentimental place, and that is with your recent marriage, man. Tell me about it. That's so cool, man. Yeah. It was just Um, a couple of weeks ago, right? It was, yeah. So uh, Jackie and I, man, we've been together like coming up on eight years. Um, So, you know, we were just going to be together. But uh, (laughs) one day uh, I was like, hey, maybe maybe we should get married. Um, There's my wedding ring, actually. Um, but you know, we're in the middle, yeah, there you go. <laughs> we're in the middle of some crazy times, uh, in terms of getting people together. So, um, yeah, we just kept it super low key. We went out to Palm Springs. Uh, Jackie used to live in San Francisco. I think I've told you this. Yeah. So her, she, she, part of her heart's sort of always in California. So I think getting married there was kind of cool, um, to sort of bring that back. So yeah, we have a friend in Palm Springs and he officiated, um, just right outside is his condo, like, uh, with views of the, the peaks behind there. What yeah. those are the, um, I always forget the name of those mountains. Do you they're know? big. I know San yeah, Jacinto is, is yes. the one there. It's the yeah. big peak. Yeah. So yeah, beautiful views and just had like two friends there as witnesses and, um, our buddies, a uh, couple friends from here in Flagstaff. So it was yeah. super low key and it was great. Yeah. I saw Kirsch, uh, Stephen Kirsch operated yep. as the, uh, the wedding photographer too. He did. Yeah. Well, it, it was good because it was more like we were all there for the weekend for like three days and, you know, it took him like 10 minutes to take some photos. Sorry, my phone is ringing. Uh, <laughs> t- took him like 10 minutes to take some photos. It was mostly just like hanging out, but it was nice to have some professional photography, which yeah. uh, he does a great job. Was it like an impromptu wedding thing or were you guys like waiting to do something bit. bigger and did COVID sort of throw bigger plans into yeah. disarray? Yeah, I think... Um, we, we intend to have, yeah, more of like a, a larger gathering, like sort of party down the road once uh, things are better. But yeah, it was a little spur of the moment in terms of this cer- ceremony. Um, yeah. I mean, so to be honest, w- one of the, uh, we, we had talked about it over the years, but one of the things that sort of sped it along was my dad passed away in November and he was, well, I, I think it just resets your yeah perspective a little bit about like you know what uh not necessarily what's important but like how you perceive certain things mm. um i was never like a marriage guy i was like yeah. i'm happy to just like be with someone um i don't think marriage means a whole lot but after that yeah it was just kind of like 
you want, I, I guess you want the person to know how yeah. much you care about them, you know? Yeah. Because not going to be here forever. Not, not that you don't know that, you know, already, but I think having that, you know, so close to home sort of makes that point, you know? Bro, that's so powerful. Are you open to talking a little bit more about the passing of your dad? Because I'm sure that was yeah. obviously not a an easy time in your life. And I didn't know that. I didn't recognize that and didn't think that this would be something that we talked about. But, <laughs> right. You no, know, I mean, I think I'm a little older than you are, but I think this time in your life, you start to feel the urgency of time a little yeah. bit more and you you do see your parents start to age. And if you have your grandparents still in your life, they're really starting to age and you start to really recognize your humanity for the first time. And you start to really confront your own aging. I totally. think for the first time when you're in your early <laughs> yeah. to mid thirties. Um, how did, how did, um, if you don't mind talking about it, how did the yeah. impact of, of your dad's passing impact you psychologically, emotionally? Was it a sudden thing? And it was, it, yeah. Um, yeah, man, it was tough. You just, like my, his dad, uh, my grandpa was 90, how old was he? I guess like 93 when, when he passed away. So my dad was like, you know, 64 or something when his dad passed away. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is, I don't know what normal is, but you know, he lived like almost his whole life with his dad alive. His mom's still alive. My grandma's still alive. Um, he lived his whole life right with his mom, uh, alive. So when it first happened, I was just like, dude, I'm too young. Yeah. Like I'm 31 years old. You're, you're, you're yeah. supposed to have your parents around when you're 31. Um, so that was pretty tough for sure. Um, I, yeah, I think it, it, it sort of was sudden. It was a, uh, it was a brain bleed, um, which, uh, it's, uh, I, I don't know enough about it, but, but it is like a diag it's a diagnosis. It's considered a disease, I guess, um, mm -hmm. where the blood cell, the blood vessels in your brain, uh, get weakened, they, they're weaker. Um, mm. they sort of break down more quickly than is normal, uh, because of like proteins. I, I don't know all the details, but, mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so he actually had had a brain bleed earlier last year in January. Uh, but, but he was never unconscious. He like lost some mobility and like his left side. Um, they didn't think they had, you know, he was in the hospital for like a day, whatever. And then in November he had, you know, a very big brain bleed where like, you know, you looked at the CT scan and the blood was everywhere. And, um, he was, uh, immediately got brought to the hospital. He ended up being alive another 10 days, but he was never conscious again. Um, that was probably the hardest part. It's like, you know, <laughs> for 10 days, it's like yeah. your dad's in the hospital and what are you going to do? Like, yeah. you just sort of felt like you had to be there. So you just were kind of at his bedside all day and then you go home and you'd be like, Jesus, I need a drink. Like, yeah. I, like it was just so hard to like deal with. Um, just like emotionally exhausting. I bet. Huh? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, that's a great way to describe it. And you've got um, brothers and sisters too, right? Were two you guys sisters. Yeah, yeah, we were, yeah. uh, which, um, my, my sister was in town. One of my sisters lives in St. Louis. The other lives in Chicago, but she was in, in town at the time. And I happened to be in St. Louis at the time as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so all three of us, yeah, happened to be in town when, when he had this brain bleed and went into the hospital. So that part was good. You know, it's good to have people yeah. around that like, you know, our family, um, that you can kind of like go through stuff with. Yeah. Um, 
so that part was good, but yeah, definitely sort of sudden and definitely, uh, yeah, just a bummer. Just, just how did it, aside from the whole marriage thing, how did it change your perspective on, on your direction in life and what you're devoting your energies to? Yeah, totally. I think, um, I think, yeah, maybe we've talked about this too, but I studied philosophy in uh, undergrad and graduate school. Yeah. And uh, I forget if it was Plato, you know, one of the famous philosophers um, said that philosophy is preparation for death. Um, um, and it, uh, that's a really succinct way of, of making a pretty profound point. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you, yeah, in studying philosophy, you just ask a lot of questions especially at a young age that I think a lot of people aren't asking. Um, and, and you sort of form your worldview um, under different assumptions, I think, than like the average 18 year old or 20 year old. Um, so I think for me in a lot of ways, in theory, I was prepared for like my dad to die. And like mm-hmm. in theory, I suppose, like I am okay with uh, dying. But I think in practice, it's definitely a little bit different, like because sure. it's no longer a, a academic exercise or like a mental exercise. It's like an emotional, like in your face, this is going yeah. on. Um, so I guess the short story is I feel like a lot of the way that I've built my life has been guided from from that foundation of uh, asking bigger questions. So I don't know that it changed anything like uh, um, dramatically from that standpoint, but mm-hmm. Yeah. Just more like the, you can just, <laughs> you can just die anytime. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, I don't know. It's hard to grapple with. Yeah. So well, I mean, yeah. but, but, but here's another thing I've said though. It's like, you're kind you're actually kind of fortunate if you get to see your parents die Yeah, because that means, you know, you're still alive. Yeah. You know, there's, there's people that don't get to see their parents die and um, maybe that's worse. Totally. Well, man, what a intense, deep place to start. <laughs> and I'm so grateful, you know, that you, you'd talk about it openly and that, you know, we could have this type of a conversation because it, it does make sort of like the generic running talk seem so insignificant and so <laughs> silly, but it's interesting. And I think those bigger moments in our lives do just shape us so much. And I'm sure looking back in the six months it's been since your dad passed, I mean, you got married. That's a wonderful thing. You had an amazing race at the black Canyon 100 K, which I'm sure felt really good after a really sad moment in your life as well. We can can talk a little bit more about that. Well, I think you speak to this, uh, just, yeah, maybe we'll get into this more, but like, uh, sports is like the ultimate, like, um, expression of like life like it's like such a like compact way of like sort of experiencing life and like really like small like a closed environment i guess isn't that so Uh, true man it is it's such a beautiful thing it really is what i try to emphasize the most in the show and just like a theme in my life that i think has always given me a sense of um just yeah direction or or just like giving me motivation and something to sort of like work towards and also I think prepared me so well for the other things in my life and I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I'm like starting all sorts of entrepreneurial stuff and I've never ever in my life been like an entrepreneurial person but now as I'm getting into it and I really um, focus on it with the same intensity that I always have with sport 
it's like the funnest freaking thing ever. And it's just yeah. like sport. I'm like, Oh, now I see that my, the last 35 years have basically set me up to, you know, potentially take a different direction for yeah. the next 35 years of my life that will utilize the skills that I've developed in a totally different, um, you know, life, uh, yeah, pursuit. Yep. And they're just as relevant. They're just as important. And like you said, yeah, having wins and losses and success and failure and just heartbreak and total elation. It's like, it's life, man. And that's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, uh, it's running too. And it's, yeah, sport in general. So let's talk about your history as an athlete. Cause I, I think you and I have, have a lot in common in this regard yeah. and that, we weren't like kind of classically trained runners. We sort of <laughs> right. accidentally got into it, yeah. but ultimately, you know, found our calling and became totally obsessed with it. So tell us a little bit about your, uh, your background as an athlete, as a team sport athlete, and, and particularly like your, your weight room prowess. Yeah. Yeah. The the weight room prowess came, uh, came in high school, I guess I'll get there, but yeah, I actually started playing uh, base baseball and soccer. Those were my sports, um, growing up. So yeah, played it, you know, pretty high level as a kid and it was super intense and, um, yeah, definitely enjoyed it. I was just so competitive that like anything, I just wanted to win it, like whatever I was doing. Um, I actually recently came across my second grade report card and <laughs> in the comments, the teacher said, <clears throat> Eric has made great progress in being less competitive. So <laughs> apparently as early as second grade, I, I had a problem with wanting to win too much. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, I think uh, playing those sports at a high level, so young, a little bit like got me burnt out a bit. Mm -hmm. um, so like by the time I got to high school, I just been, you know, it's practice all the time and tournaments and travel and games. And um, yeah, I think I was a little burnt out. So I ended up uh, playing football when I got to high school and being, uh, you know, playing soccer, running around baseball, a uh, little underdeveloped, like I was, I wasn't very big. So I was like, well, I gotta, gotta hit the weights, you know, get, get beefed up for, uh, for my football career, <laughs> yeah. which ended up being like two years. It, it uh, wasn't very long, but, um, I did get super into to lifting weights. So, um, that's something that continued through high school and in, into college. Um, like I, I had a membership to gold's gym in high school, oh, yeah. uh, and like, uh, yeah, just would go there. Like I would go there with a buddy of mine on like Friday night. That's like what we would do is like yeah. go lift weights. Um, super into it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, when I got to college, um, a friend of mine at TCU, I went to Texas Christian university. Um, he entered, he gave me Dean Carnaz's book, ultra marathon man. And I think he wasn't really a runner. Yeah. Isn't that great? Yes. Um, I mean, I think he's done some half marathons, maybe he's even done a marathon. Um, but, but, uh, maybe he, I think it was a New York times bestseller. Maybe that's yeah. how he came across it. Right. Mm -hmm. So he gave it to me. He's like, I think you'd really like this. This is my freshman year of, uh, of college. So I, I read it. Um, and I was like, Whoa, he like, I didn't know people ran this far. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think I knew what a marathon was, but, um, yeah, beyond that, I had no idea. So somewhere in there, he says anyone can fake a marathon. Yeah. Um, which in the context was like, if you had to go out tomorrow and cover 26 miles, 26.2, you yeah. could do it. You know, you'd probably have to walk, whatever. Yeah. So I was like, well, I mean, I understand logic. Like if anyone can do it, yeah. <laughs> that means I can do it. Um, yeah. I guess I should try. So I trained for like three months and ran, um, 
the go St. Louis marathon. Uh, yeah. Back in, back in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, uh, and ran three hours, 37 minutes in, uh, April of 2008. I think it was. Dude, this is crazy, man. This is literally (laughs) exactly my story too. Yeah. Pretty much. You you were playing lacrosse. Well, yeah. yeah, I don't know if you want to go into that. I was just, I was just a little bit later than you. So, okay, sure. sure. But but didn't you then like you walk on at uh, at TCU and and run there for a little while? I did. So that, that, that was my fresh, my second semester of college. I ran that first marathon. Then I was like, you know, everyone talks about getting a Boston qualifier and yeah. running Boston. Um, well, I don't know if everyone does, but that's what people were talking about who, who I know. And was yeah, running. Yeah, of course. So like, yeah. Oh, I got to qualify for Boston. And in the qualifying time was three ten at the time for my age group. So the next fall in the fall of 2008, I ran the San rock and roll San Antonio and I ran three Oh nine. So I ran, you know, 28 minutes faster. Um, so I qualified for Boston and then I, uh, I got to run Boston in the spring of 2009. And so that was the end of my sophomore year of college. And after that, I was kind of, I don't know, I ran, I ran Boston slower. I think I ran like 318 after going out like 129 the first half. So it was a real, uh, real fun second half. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I just needed like a chain. Like I, I was like, ah, all right, I've done the marathon. I want to do yeah. something else. So yeah. So I, I reached out to the coach there at TCU and walked onto the team and ran for a year and a half uh, at TCU. So it's so funny, man, because I was absolutely of the Dean Carnazza's era and also, you know, found so much inspiration from yeah. his book and just absolutely became completely obsessed with whether or not I was going to be capable of it as well. And then I yeah. signed up for my first marathon where I think I ran like 320. Nice. And then like two months later, I ran my second marathon and took 25 minutes off it or whatever. Oh shit, then, you went under three hours? Yeah, second yeah, one? yeah. Nice. And, uh, and it was actually, I think it was in Las Vegas. Yeah, it was in Las Vegas. And of course, that was the time in my life where I basically just looked for a race where I could just party as hard as I possibly could <laughs> afterwards. And Vegas was, this is before they made it a night race. Uh, okay. I think would make it even more conducive to partying, but it was, right. a, it was a morning race when I did it, but you run, you know, a half marathon on the strip and it's just so depressing seeing all the people <laughs> who've been out all night while you're, uh, you're racing and then yeah. yeah, finish at like nine o'clock in the morning and went straight to the sports book and watched football all day and just <laughs> drank a million beers. And it's like so funny to look back on it. But I also, I remember in college because I was playing lacrosse and yeah. Um, but I was like my role on the team was to be like the runner, the hustle guy, you know, the yeah. guy who covered ground and, and ran. So it was always sort of like a strength. And I r- contemplated going out for the cross country team. And I knew a guy who, who ran for the cross country te- team. So I contemplated walking on and I remember asking him about the training and stuff. And he said, yeah, "Yeah, you know, we, we run like 70 miles a week. And I remember just being like, Oh no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) Never, never mind, man. Never mind. And just like running, thinking back at like when 70 mile weeks were just like absolutely mind blowing, just impossible to fathom. And then also like the first four mile run that I went on and coming back home and being like, Oh, my life is never going to be the same. Nobody <laughs> has any idea how hard that was. It's like I'm capable of anything. It's like, yes, the humble beginnings, man. Totally dude. Yeah. yeah. I remember breaking an hour for eight miles for the first time. 
And I was like, dude, I'm legit. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like a good runner. Yeah. Um, call, call Nike, call Nike. Yeah, call Nike. I, when I remember when I, when I chopped, you know, whatever it was 28 minutes off my marathon, the first to the second, I remember like doing the math and I was like, okay, so to qualify for the Olympic trials, you got to run whatever it was. It was probably 219 at the time. And I was yeah. like, well, if I just take 28 minutes off on the next one, <laughs> Then I'll be like at 240 and I do it again. And I'm like, maybe I qualify for the trial. Like what? In three marathons, I'll, <laughs> I'll be running sub two. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. It's uh, it's funny. What, Too bad uh, math doesn't work like that. <laughs> um, well, so I, I guess at what point after you graduate, did you start to get curious about trail and ultra running? Yeah. Uh, how so did, it's, how did that happen? it's funny because again, before, before I even ever was a runner, when I was reading Dean Carnazes' book, I mean, I wasn't a runner at the time. I wouldn't, yeah, I wasn't a runner, but I knew about trail and ultra running, like as soon as I knew about running, which is probably unique in the sense that people probably, you know, start, run a 5k or a, marath a marathon, eventually find ultra running. But yeah, so I sort of always knew about it. And in college, um, I got my ass kicked, like, I mean, we, we were a D1 program. We weren't very yeah. good, but like I was not, I mean, I was the very back of, yeah. of the team. But what I noticed was when we would do our long runs, it seemed like the gap was, was sort of smaller. Mm -hmm. Like I could keep up better on the long runs than like a four mile tempo. Mm -hmm. So, and yeah, like I kind of mentioned earlier, I just have always since I was a kid, I think it was just instilled in me in, in various ways. Like I just always wanted to win. Yeah. Like just anything I was doing. So when it came to running, it was like, well, you know, I, I realized I was never qualifying for the Olympic trials in the marathon. Yeah. Um, so it was like, but I, I like this, I like doing this, but I, I like to be good at the things that I like to do. Like, mm -hmm. where can I be competitive? And I was like, well, I, maybe if I run farther, cause like, in college that proved true. So maybe I just need to run farther races. Mm -hmm. So immediately after college, um, I graduated in December, 2010. Um, and then actually moved out to Boulder, um, Colorado in January, 2011. My sister was at CU. So she was, she was there. Um, but I went out there cause yeah, it was like, that trailing. was the place to run. Yeah, trailing. Really? Yeah, Tony Kropitschke out there, you know, like. Dude, like I said, we're the same person, man. <laughs> that was the same way. It's like, I mean, it's I crazy. grew up in Boulder, but I, sure. I didn't move back there. But yeah, I mean, I was the guy who was at work just sitting behind a computer reading, riding the wind, Tony's uh, blog spot. Yep. Yep. And, uh, right. yeah, whenever he, whenever he updated it, man, I would read that thing front to back like two or three times, just totally. as inspired as a human being could possibly be totally. ready yeah, to just run through a brick wall. And when you looked at his log, you were just like, some like people can run this much, like <laughs> yeah. shit. He lives um, in a truck. Oh my yeah. God. He doesn't wear a shirt. Sometimes he doesn't wear shoes. Like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah. yeah it's great. It's like mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I know he, you know, much to his kind of chagrin, that's sort of like, I don't know, probably it turned into just like a caricature of who he is as a person. And for I, sure. Uh, but like, you know, he's, he changed people's lives, including myself and yours in, in yeah. a way that uh, is hard to describe. And, and that whole uh, era of the sport was like just this feeling of just palpable energy. And it's sort of increased and changed in different ways, but it was such a, a special time. So you mo moved to Boulder, hoping to sort yeah. of, push the distances a little bit. Um, yep. tell us about, about those years. Uh, sure. What you learned. 
Yeah. Well, it is a quick tangent too, to this point. Uh, I remember flipping through a trail runner magazine when I was living in Boulder, just like sitting on the floor and I turned the page and there was Killian Jornet. Um, mm. and I, I remember looking at it and being like, who is this dude? Like this guy, like, I want to be like this, <laughs> like this guy looks legit. Um, and I never will be. And I don't think anyone ever will be, uh, but, but, um, just another, like, yeah, just kind of like the, the inspiration and, you know, uh, I guess just quickly to that point, I think some people today in ultra running, like kind of have, I don't know, maybe they don't like the way it's evolved, like the sport as a whole mm-hmm. and like the people that get involved and it's just much more accessible, I think mm-hmm. to people, but I look at it and I'm like, man, like, more people have the opportunity to be like you and me, like back in the day, you know what I mean? Like, I think that was much more of a rarity, but I think like today as the sport grows, um, yeah, you can, it reaches a lot more people and a lot more people have that opportunity to look at Dylan Bowman and be like, I want to go, you know, race hard rock one year, um, after you win this summer. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, anyways, I, I really like, I, I think that's cool. Like, yeah. I think it's cool that there's more and more reach and more and more people getting into the sport, um, for that reason. But, um, yeah, I, I want to talk more about, yeah, sort of the growth and the future and media integration. Cause I know you and I are both sort of trying to push that side of things as much yeah. as we can in our sport. But, uh, yeah, before we get, get, get sorry, to that, but yeah, back to Boulder. Yeah. So I was only there for like eight months. Um, cause I actually then was going to graduate school in Madison, Wisconsin, um, starting in August of 2011, but yeah, I was there for six months and, uh, <laughs> I remember, so it was great, man. Like I, I ran a lot more than I ever had. Um, you know, I did, I got up to like a 30 mile training run, getting ready for a 50 mile race. Um, like I remember splitting the marathon, like you know, the second fastest I'd ever run a marathon in a training run. Like I definitely was like getting better and mm-hmm. kind of getting the hang of it and like understanding how to train and stuff, but also some very funny stuff looking back too. like, I didn't think you could run up the mountains in Boulder. Like, like if I was going up to the mountains, I was going for a hike. Yeah, like yeah. You, no one's running those. And I remember <laughs> one day seeing, I mean, I have no idea who it was. Uh, maybe I'd know who they were now, but um, just as I was on a hike, like this guy, you know, short shorts, no shirt on, just run by me and like running up the trail. And I was like, what? You can't run up these trails. Like, yeah. yeah, this is insane. Like I thought like, uh, you know, like a South Boulder Creek trail, mm-hmm. uh, turns to dirt. Like, well, I guess most of it's dirt, but it is paved along the Creek there at one point. Mm-hmm. Like I thought that was like trail running when I first got to Boulder. Yeah. Like I just thought like it's a dirt stretch, which is hilarious. Cause yeah. it's like basically a dirt road. Um, but that was like my perception of what trail running was, right. um, which is crazy to look back on. But the race I was getting ready for was um, the Voyager 50 mile in Minnesota. In Minnesota yeah. So that was my first ultra um, that July, I think it was in 2011. Um, so did you always think you were going to go to grad school back in the Midwest? Cause you, you grew up in St. Louis, right? That's right. So you, you, did you feel a little pull back to that? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think that was part of it. I mean, I applied to like 20 programs, um, for grad school and I think I got into like five, mm-hmm. um, and Wisconsin's was, uh, I guess it was the second best offer. Basically it was like the best offer from the highest ranked school. Cause I thought I wanted to teach and like, you know, 
be at the university level. Um, so, you know, where you get your PhD starts matters if, yeah. uh, in terms of getting jobs and stuff. So Wisconsin was ranked pretty high in, in philosophy, maybe 15th in the country or something. Um, do, you, do you think that your interest in philosophy has any correlation to your intense competitiveness that you've talked about a couple of times? Because I wonder, I mean, a lot of, a lot of philosophy is like tackling obviously the world's biggest questions sure, and having arguments and persuasion and yes. sometimes, yeah, debate a little bit. Do you, that's th- very true. Did, did yeah. the, was that, part I, think, <clears throat> I think for me, it was more, Maybe not that, but, but I guess I'll, I, maybe it's an interesting point. So I was raised, uh, I was raised Catholic. Um, and it just never sat right with me. Um, just the, the answers to like pretty basic questions. Um, and I feel like philosophy for me was more like, oh, I can make sense of the world with a framework that is understandable. Like I can answer questions by pointing to like stuff in the world that can like explain it. Um, there was something really satisfying about that. So yeah, maybe it wasn't a competitiveness, but some, I think the, the sort of being curious and like wanting to explore and like find answers, I think is part of in some sense being an ultra runner. Mm -hmm. Cause like, that's kind of what you're doing. You're exploring new distances, you're exploring new places, new trails. Um, you're kind of like finding out what you're capable of. Um, I think that's what it was for me with philosophy. It was like trying to just make sense of like (laughs) the world and like, what are we doing? It's so true. I mean, each one of these silly races we sign up for is somewhat of a philosophical exercise where we're trying to answer some profound (laughs) question deeper than our souls. It's again, you know, just going back to us having so much in common. I mean, it's very similar to to my story too. I mean, with the whole Catholicism and being raised at least loosely within a tradition where you're sort of like, I'm not sure this is really how I feel about the universe. Um, (laughs) And, um, you know, being interested in, in sort of carving your own path. And uh, it's, it's interesting to explore the overlap between your competitive spirit and, and potential, yeah. you know, trying to, to answer those big questions. So, I mean, I ultimately, we don't need to spend too much time on, on your, uh, on your history and, and uh, progression within the sport, but I know you sort of went back to Colorado for a short time before you finally landed in, in what is now home in Flagstaff. Yeah. So talk to us about that. Uh, transition or, or at least landing where you are now and, and yeah. sort of what, uh, what value you've seen as being part of that community? Yeah. So my, um, my grandparents actually first, uh, moved out to Flagstaff in the mid eighties. They, they got like a condo out here. Um, so they would spend some of the year out here, some of the year in St. Louis. So when I was growing up, we would come out here every summer, uh, to Flagstaff. So it was, yeah, place I knew uh, and had been, you know, quite a few times. Um, so when Jackie and I were like looking at, she'd been living in San Francisco, crazy expensive, uh, as you know. And it was like, let's try to live somewhere that's not so expensive. Um, so we ended, we ended up going to Denver kind of as a compromise of sorts. Like she wanted to be in a bigger city and I wanted to be in the mountains or near the trails or whatever. So we ended up in Denver. Um, didn't wasn't like kind of the right vibe for us, I I guess. Um, so we started talking about moving and 
I was like, Hey, Flagstaff's pretty cool. If like you want to check it out. Yeah. So we ended up moving here and, um, yeah, man, it's, uh, it's, it's an amazing place. And for me, it's, uh, being here, it's, it's, uh, I, I just always tell people how much better it's made me as a runner. And part of that is what we have available to us. Like we have some, the, the terrain, you can get any type of terrain. Like you can train for any race living in, in Flagstaff. I mean, you got the Grand Canyon with a 5,000 foot climb in heat. Um, you've got a, tw- a mountain that's over 12,000 feet. You can train at elevation. Um, you can go down to Sedona in the winter and run on dry trails. Like you just, you, you can get so good. But beyond that, I had met, um, I'd met Jim Walmsley back in 2014 at JFK. And so we had kind of stayed in touch and he was obviously out here. Um, and he kind of introduced me to Tim Frericks and Cody Reed. Um, and then we were out here for Ian Torrance's wedding in 2016. So we were still in, uh, living in Denver. Mm -hmm. Um, and Jared Hazen was in town visiting, thinking about moving out here. So like got to hang out with Jared. Uh, and so he just like knew some people within the running community and obviously within the flight staff community. And then once I moved here, man, it's like, you just, if you, if you just go run with people that are better than you every day, Mm -hmm. um, you're just going to get better. Like it, it, it's kind of a blessing to be like the worst person in your group, you know, (laughs) like you just like, you don't have a choice, but like you're either going to get chewed up or like, you're going to figure out a way to try to keep up. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that that lesson sort of extends well beyond running, but yeah, I think that surrounding yourself with people who are going to make you better is super important. Um, it definitely has been for me. Yeah. I, it's something that I try and stress to younger athletes all the time as well is especially when you have youth and flexibility in your life to find a community of people that you can train with that will push you. And we sort of fell into that environment in the Bay area when we were there somewhat accidentally. I mean, I begrudgingly moved from Aspen to chase my girlfriend at the time, my now wife uh, to San Francisco. And it just so happened to luckily coincide with the opening of the San Francisco running company, which Ah. just exploded the whole trail and ultra running scene in the Bay area, or it didn't explode it, but I guess consolidated it. It brought everybody together and we had a single place that we could meet and do workouts together. And over the course of four or five years, the community just got stronger and the people who showed up just got better and better. And so every Saturday at the group run, the front group is just moving, you know, like it's, uh, you're straining to hang on most most Saturdays. And it's just a training stimulus that you otherwise can't really simulate. And then additionally, outside of the Saturday group run, you have all these great friends that you can go do one-off workouts with. We had our Wednesday morning Tam summit run and just looking back on it now with some perspective and not being in that environment anymore. I was like, wow, man, like no wonder I got so much better as an athlete. Like as soon as I moved there, it also sort of coincided with getting connected with a coach for the first time. And obviously like having, the energy and the motivation to do what I was doing helped a lot too. And it was just like this perfect recipe to just like have my career sort of take off. So I guess uh, let's talk a little bit more about like the training environment that you guys have there um, with the Coconino Cowboys. Um, Practically, what does it look like? Like how often are you guys getting together and uh, 
what, uh, what kind of stuff are you guys doing both out in training and, and maybe some of the intangible stuff too, that you think has helped so much? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I should start by saying, Debo, that I, I've gotten dropped on that Saturday uh, SFRC run a number of times. Everybody um, has. So I, 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 I hear you. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's, that's a fun one. Yeah, um, yeah I think uh, <clears throat> we, I mean, we run together a lot. Um, I think just basically the question is always kind of what race are you getting ready for and what does that require? So like actually just getting ready for black Canyon. Um, I train more on my own than I have since I moved here, like in the last three plus years, just because, you know, Jim was getting ready for a road hundred K Tim was getting ready for that as well. Um, the project carbon X two, um, Jared was kind of coming off an injury um, Steven was coming off a, Steven Kirsch was coming off a JFK. Um, so wasn't, wasn't running too much. Well, so was Jared, but he kind of got injured. So yeah, like, uh, didn't really run with, with the guys as much, which was kind of a bummer, but, uh, it seems like we're all kind of more aligned right now in terms of what we're getting ready for, because, you know, Jim's <laughs> and Steven and Jared and me. Um, and I think, uh, Tim's got some, some mountain races in the summer. So like a lot of stuff we're doing will work, work with what he's yeah. got going, but yeah. Um, I mean, just last week, for example, like, uh, went down and ran in Sedona with, uh, with Jared, um, in, in, uh, it's got Joey DeFeo who ran at NAU. He's been running with us more. He, uh, he actually left the NAU team to like just run trails and mountains, which uh, w- we all think is kind of a crazy idea. Cause like if I could be on a national championship cross country team, I'd probably yeah. choose that, yeah. but, uh, but he loves it. So he's been running with us a bunch. Um, yeah. And then like, uh, just tons of runs around Flagstaff. Um, we, we, yeah, we'd just text each other and be like, Hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Yeah. Um, like yesterday I was, I was hanging out with Jared and I was like, what, when are you going to the Canyon next? And he's like, Oh, I'm going on Tuesday. I'm going to run to Cottonwood and back, which is 30 mm-hmm. miles. And I was like, cool. That's what I'm going to do Tuesday. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think that, um, I think that it helps to bring a lot of things, but I think one of the things is mental, like the mental side of the sport. Right. And I think that a lot of times, I think people in general probably just struggle with being confident in, in their abilities and racing maybe with, with confidence. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's really a big part of, of doing well. Um, and if you don't have, if you don't have a reliable sort of like dial that indicates you accurately or not, like where you are relative to other people that are good, Mm. um, it's, it's tough to like have the right confidence level because you can be way overconfident because yeah. you know you think you're in shape to do such and such turns out you're not or to beat so and so um so i think a, a big thing with the with running with guys around here is like it really lets me know like where i'm at mm-hmm. and and what I, maybe what i need to do to get where i want to be if i'm not where i'm at and then like you go into a race and it's like Again, I can just use my recent race, Black Canyon. You know, some of the top guys in the race, um, there are some bigger names like Seth Ruling, who, who's won JFK, mm-hmm. um, a couple Flagstaff guys, Nick Hilton uh, and Craig Hunt, who are both super fast. Um, you know, there was a good lineup of guys. And like, I look at that start list and I'm like, guys I train with every day would beat every single one of these people. Yeah. Um, and if that's true, then I should be able to. 
Uh, Tyler Green, of course, he he was on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. got to give Tyler a shout out. He won. Shout out, Tyler. But yeah, um, it's amazing what that does for you. Yeah, it really is uh, because it just if you can race with confidence, you can just do things that you never thought would be possible. I so think. So true. You know? Are you um, the type of athlete that that struggles having confidence at a start line, or are you somebody who who struggles to? or maybe is a little bit overconfident sometimes with your training. <laughs> well, what I tell people is I'm just really good at lying to myself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think that I actually, I, I think, I think I do well in terms of like showing up on the start line, believing mm-hmm. that, that I can beat people. Mm-hmm. Um, cause yeah, I just, yeah, you know, I, I won't say everything that I tell myself because yeah. some of this kind of mean to be honest, but like, <laughs> it just like helped. Like I think about someone and I'm like, Oh, I've done I, I I can just, you can just sort of spin it in your head where it's yeah. like, I'm better than this person. Yeah. Okay. Um, which is sort of, yeah, that, that's, it, I would never say that to them. Sure. Right? Like, I think that's kind of like arrogant and mean, but like yeah. in my head, when I show up on the start line, like, you know, it's typically what I, what I'm thinking. Um, yeah. Western States this year will be, uh, maybe a little tougher to get my head around because <laughs> the field's pretty stacked, but yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously I agree with everything you said in terms of, yeah, it's so important to have confidence. And when you do have the types of people in your training environment who are as good or better than the people you expect to be competing against on race day, it really does unlock uh, a level of mental fortitude that uh, does pay dividends on race day in terms of, yeah, just accessing a, a deeper level of energy or having confidence in your ability to navigate whatever situation is thrown your way uh, on race day, because you've been put through the ringer so many times in in training. Um, So it's sort of, I guess, in tandem with what we're already talking about, you know, you, you said that moving to Flagstaff just helped you be so much better as a runner. And I think you can sort of see that in your career progression. And when you moved to flag, you'd already been in the sport for a little while and you'd had some success, but then you started, you know, smashing these golden ticket races, you win JFK. Um, And then ultimately, you know, you also had a string of sort of rough races. And um, I think, this is obviously something that we all deal with as athletes as well, where we can have these moments where we're supremely confident, where everything's clicking. And then we have two or three bad ones in a row. And it's like, my whole life is crumbling around me. And especially when you're training in an environment where you do have the best guys in the world in your training group. And you're, these guys are putting trophies on the shelf by the dozen and you can't seem to have a good race. Right. So I, I want to talk a little bit about this moment in your career too, because uh, you wrote an amazing article about it last year uh, up on Rabbit's website. Your your sponsor it was entitled something like "Am I good anymore?" or something like that. <laughs> am I as good as I once was? Yeah. As I am, am I as good as I once was? Uh, so talk about that moment in your career where you had a couple bad ones in a row, and you started to kind of doubt whether or not you were wasting your time still pursuing this as a, as a career and as a passion. Yeah. I think, um, part, part of the purpose of writing it, uh, in, in, at that moment was, I think in some sense it was kind of like humanizing a little bit, like just let, I think part of the, I think what, 
if you're, if you're a, I don't know, let's say a high level athlete, uh, in the sport, um, I have a weird time talking about it in, in these terms. Cause I don't view myself as like some, some like big athlete. Um, so it's kind of weird to say oh, if you're an elite athlete, whatever in the sport of ultra running, um, we know what you mean, man. <laughs> yeah. I think in some sense, like, um, yeah, you have the ability to like impact people. Right. And like kind of give people a guide on like, um, I don't know what, what to expect, uh, and kind of like what everyone's going through. Like in some sense, if, if this guy's going through it, then it's normal for, for me to go through it or whatever. So I think a lot of people feel that way at times, right? Um, like why am I doing this? Um, why can't I do it as well as I, as I once did? Um, in some sense, it's sort of, uh, airing some frustrations. Um, so when I wrote it, that was kind of my point was just in some sense to transcend, not just, it wasn't just about me. It was just about like the, it, I don't know, maybe it was me trying to <laughs> tell myself it's okay to feel this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and kind of to, to reset and then be able to ask like, well, what, what can I do to change it? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, yeah, I had a, at North Face, uh, end of 2019, you, you were, you were there, I forget, were you fifth, seven? I think I was fifth. Fifth, yeah. yeah. I can't even remember um, anymore. So yeah, I, I was like 35th, I don't even remember. Yeah. And then a couple months later at Bandera, just, yeah, another just shit race. And, um, and before, before TNF, you dropped out of Western States. And I dropped out of Western States yeah. in, in 2019. Yep, Exactly. Yeah, man. Shit. That was rough, Dylan. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm glad to be back it's where tough, I am now. It's tough, man. It's yeah, tough. It's yeah. Awesome, but it's also funny how like one good race kind of just like erases all that. <laughs> totally. It just changes it. Right. So yeah, I think that, um, I think for me, it was kind of like trying to get back to like ground zero and be like, okay, why were the, why did I have these bad races? And I could identify, I, I did, I sat down and like, I didn't literally write it out, but like thought through it. And I was like, okay, this was going on before this race. I didn't do this right. Um, I didn't run enough, uh, you know, mileage over a period of time. Um, I started looking at those training blocks and just like assessing it. And it was like, okay, I can make sense of this. You know, I could, I at least have something to grab onto. Um, cause I think then mentally it, it sort of helps, right? Like if you can't identify why you're not racing well, it's like, yeah. You're just pulling at straw. It's like the, you, you just, it's the philosophy major. I need to sort out diet. the major problems yeah. in the world. Yeah. Assess and Was diagnose and dehydration uh, or <laughs> not enough training. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was able to kind of like get my head on straight. And honestly, I think the last year for me, um, it was kind of nice not to have the pressure to race mm-hmm. and just to be able to like, kind of I don't know focus on other things and I felt like I came into to this year like really refreshed mm-hmm. um like I hadn't I didn't run as many miles last year I didn't have a bunch of hard long races and getting into this training block at the end of last year into this year yeah I just I think I I I felt refreshed um and I don't know if I would have gotten that if not for the pandemic like I might have kept racing poorly <laughs> yeah. and like not righted the ship you know um so I think in some sense that was fortunate now I'd prefer to not have the pandemic and I just don't race well, but you know, that's not the way it went. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, I, I feel like I talked, uh, kind of at length there. I don't know if I answered <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. what you were looking for. Yeah. But. I mean, I, I think the important thing is that 
we all have shitty races, (laughs) unfortunately, (laughs) sometimes two or three in a row. And then the challenge at that point is to not lose all faith in yourself as an athlete and and also not lose your ability to be okay with life (laughs) external of of running. Cause I think this is something that again, everybody learns as they mature in life and in sport and sport is the ultimate metaphor of of life that we all hit our, our hard times. And ultimately those hard times though, they seem insurmountable and never ending. Eventually they do come to a close and you come out of them with an immense amount of new growth and understanding. And, uh, I think the challenging part of your situation is you wrote this article, this great article on rabbit, and I'll link to it in the show notes so people can read it. I think it was like January of 2020. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then you, you didn't have an opportunity to race again <laughs> until black Canyon. Yeah. 13 so you, had, you had like a whole year to stew with this feeling yeah. of like, shit, <laughs> am I washed up? Is this ever coming back? Right. So I guess let's talk about black Canyon now because most people who listen to this will know already, but you finished second place there, an amazing race. You secured a golden ticket again into this year's Western States 100. And I think when you look at the podium finishers at Black Canyon this year, it's kind of an interesting story because Tyler ran just an absolutely textbook race. Yep. Nick ran also a textbook race, Nick Curry, who finished yep. third. Yep. And you ran more aggressively in the beginning with the leaders. Those guys all fell apart. Yeah. You you fell apart a little bit. It seems like I want to get your story. Yeah. It yeah. seems like you you dealt with some problems in the middle of the race, probably as a result of maybe going out with the leaders. But then, god damn it, you fucking <laughs> closed like an absolute champion at the yeah. end. So talk about uh, Black Canyon and uh, yeah, just maybe give us the the wholesome synopsis, touching on all those different things that I mentioned. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, the first thing I would say that where I'll start is for me, it's never really been, I'm a competitive person. I want to win, but, um, it's never been about the results. Like the, the, the process of going through what you have to go through to get ready for a race is so much more enriching than any race result, whether you're first or second or 78th or, or whatever. Um, so in terms of just continuing to come back and like having that full year, I didn't get to race, but here I am again, right. You know, doing it again. It's a little bit addicting. I think like that, that sort of cycle of like putting yourself through hell to get ready for something. Um, and I really like that. So when it comes to racing, my, my view is like, can I win? Like, how well can I do? Like, I'm not interested, I'm not interested in, um, like training through a race, like, mm. um, or like how much can I run in training? Only thing, only question I'm ever asking is what can I do in training to give myself the best chance to win, mm-hmm. to do as well as I can. And when I go out and race, my question is not, uh, how can I set myself up to have a faster second half or how can I try to pass more people late in the race? My question is just, what do I need? How do I need to race today in order to try to win? Um, so, you know, so to, to talk about Tyler Green and Nick Curry, tons of respect for both of those guys. Mm -hmm. Um, I've talked, I've hung out with Nick a couple of times since that race. And I was like, Nick, 
why don't you go out faster, man? (laughs) (laughs) I think he was like 25 minutes behind at halfway. And he finished. It's a valid question. It's amazing. And so he, I mean, it is, Nick is interested in from, from my conversations with him, as far as I understand him, he's interested in seeing how much he can get, uh, in training, um, while continuing to run races. So how can he run races so he can recover really well and then get straight back into training? Because in his mind, the more volume over time, the better you're going to be, which, which is, I mean, that's a good equation. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, yeah, he, he, he's like, look, if I run the first half, super conservative, then I can run the second half, the last 31 miles and not be very beat up. Um, so when I'm done after all 62, I just don't feel that bad because mm-hmm. the second half, I wasn't forcing myself to run fast when I was like trashed right yeah. from the, from the first half. So I, you know, I, I, I get that. That's interesting. It's not interesting for me. Like that doesn't motivate me, yeah. but like that motivates him. And that, I mean, that's cool. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, people have different motivations and yeah, Tyler green, like I think, um, super smart racer, like historically, yeah. like that guy really doesn't, he doesn't race poorly. Like in my the only thing I can think of wasn't even a bad race. He was like 13th at Western States. And like, that's his bad race. My bad race is 78th at Western States. So, um, (laughs) you know, I, I think like, uh, taking less risk over, over the long haul is definitely going to make you more consistent. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, for me, it's just, man, I just want to, just want to win the damn race. That's the cowboy way, man. That's the cowboy (laughs) way. And maybe that's part of the reason, like I sort of meshed well with, with, with the Jim group. and and these guys, because uh, that's everybody's mentality, man. Yeah. Like, it's it's uh, they're all pretty cutthroat dudes. Like they don't, they're not there just to. Joke I mean, around. I love it, man. I, yeah, I'm here for it. I mean, I'm definitely more of a you know race uh, race uh, smart in the first half and try and finish finish uh, strong. But I am just such a big fan of your guys's group and the personalities you guys have and the energy you guys bring to races and the confidence that you guys have as a group and individually. I think it's so good for the sport, but let's talk, I mean, about like the psychology of it, because at that aid station, shout out again to Jamil Curry and Arvipa for their amazing coverage, but you came in in third place at 50 miles or 51 miles, whatever that was the last aid station. So you have 10 or 12 miles to go to the finish line. Yeah. And you're cramping your ass off. Like you're in not a good place, right? Tyler comes in looking totally fresh. Yeah. And, um, the guy, Craig hunt, who was in the lead, who ultimately dropped, uh, was not looking great. And it must've dawned on you at that point that, you know, you had this opportunity to get this golden ticket and it seemed like something flipped in your brain because, you were eight or nine minutes behind Tyler at this last aid station and ultimately finished four or five minutes behind him. So, and Tyler was looking great. Right. Right. So there was something that was unleashed within you at that point. And it was probably this realization of this ticket is mine for the taking or it's achievable still. Yeah. What was that? Those last 10 miles. (sighs) Yeah, it was, um, I, I went, it, it was before going into that aid station, I had run with Tyler for a few miles. Mm-hmm. Um, cause he had caught up to me and yeah, I was just having this cramping in my hamstring. Like I'd never felt anything like it. It was, it was not great. Um, and he, he looked good, like for sure. And so he passed me and I, I had been in second place. Right. 
And so now I went from being in position to have a golden ticket to, to not being in yeah. position to have one. And I was like mile 45. And so I think, I mean, you know how these things go. It's like, it, 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 it swings, <laughs> it swings negative. You know, like yeah. you start, you start, it's not good. Like you start kind of, it's hard to be positive in a moment like that. <laughs> yeah. So the, the question is like, what do you do? Um, and if I've learned anything, I mean, I've run like 40 ultras at this point or 35, whatever. Yeah. Um, you just got to keep moving. Like it, that's what, that's sort of what you just have to start telling yourself. It's like, okay, just keep moving because you just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, that's, what's kind of cool about <laughs> the sport and, and running this far. So when I came to the aid station, um, my crew and, and Steven Kirsch was there, he was current, uh, he was going to pace me. Um, they were, they did a really great job. Like that was a huge part of it. Um, so J Jackie was out there. I mean, she's crewed me at, I don't know, 30 of the 40 ultras I've done. Like she's done this a lot. Yeah. Um, and I think they, they just, they all stayed really calm. They, they, there was no urgency. It was not like, okay, you got to get back out there. Um, you got to catch these guys. It was like, take your time, get what you need. You know, what's going on? What, how can we fix this? Um, so they were all very calm. And then as we were leaving, Steven was like, look, Eric, Craig Hunt, he looked like shit. He's going to drop. All, all we got to do is just keep going. And I was like, all right. And I've been running really slow, dude. Like, yeah. I don't know, like nine, nine, 10 minute miles. Yeah. Like you're more worried people are going to catch you from. Yeah, behind. exactly. Exactly. And that's the other thing they were saying. They're like, everyone dropped. There's no one behind you. I'm like, okay, all right. I'm not going to worry about the people behind. Me. Like they just said the right things to, to get that, that shift to, to swing back positive, you know, uh -huh. that uh, on the mental side. So we just came out of that last aid station going up the, this climb. And I was like, Steven, are, like, are we running fast enough? And he was like, dude, we're doing fine. You're doing great. Like he, he wasn't making me push. Like I'm used to really trying to push at that yeah. point in races. And I, one thing that this kind of showed me was like, you don't have to be on the gas all the time, mm -hmm. especially late in a race. Like maybe you're better off like backing off for a little bit. Yeah. Um, Cause then, yeah, we, we saw Craig a couple miles later and sure enough, like he's walking back down the trail towards the aid station. Steven was like, I told you, dude, like, all right, let's go finish this thing up. Like was super low key about it. And then, so, uh, so did, did the afterburners just, was there a wave of adrenaline and relief that just carried you? I mean, because well, I'm just struggling to understand how you ended up running those last 10 miles, five yeah. minutes faster than Tyler did. <laughs> I mean, I, I ripped them pretty good. I would say yeah. a couple things. One, um, there's quite a bit of downhill over those last 10 miles, like you kind of climb for like four or five miles, but then it's a lot of downhill. Uh, I know that section of the course so damn well, like yeah. I've run it so many times. Mm. Um, and I don't think it was adrenaline. I tried to stay really calm and almost pretend like it didn't happen. Cause I was worried I was going to get like too excited. And th this thing with my hamstrings seemed to get worse. It seemed to flare up when I was either running uphill or trying to run fast the, like those two things. So I was trying to just be smooth and not like run too hard, but, um, I definitely started to feel better and yeah, I just, uh, I had, a, I had a lot left in me, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. which was cool to, to know. Like, um, I told Chris Brown, cause we were buddy of mine, we were talking about the race afterwards. And I said, I think one thing I learned from this race, like looking at Western States, for example, is like, it's okay 
I was forced to run easier from mile like 40 to 50 because mm-hmm. of this hamstring thing. Like aerobically, I was fine. I just, this thing would, it, my leg would start to like cramp up. So, but I think what I learned is like, I can chill in the middle of a race. And like, I don't, I think my mentality is always to be racing. Like when I look back at Western States the yeah. last couple of years, it's like I was racing at mile 30 and like, that's a tough way to go run yeah. that race, man. Like, I think like, you know, Jim Dude, and Jared I mean, did and it if, last if year, you're but... being honest, I mean, the racing starts earlier than that. I always tell people, <laughs> I mean, looking back at, at Western States, I've started the race four times myself. And the last time I started was in 2015. So a long time ago now. And I still remember going up the first climb uh, out of yeah. Squaw, going up the escarpment and it's a big group of guys. And yeah, you're sort of going easy, but like, you know, you, the, the whole group will start to hike. And then as soon as the first guy starts to jog again, the whole group starts to jog again. And, you know, you can say that you're not really racing, yeah. but everybody's looking at each other already you yep. know, on the first climb. Yeah, that's so true. Trying to analyze who looks good. <laughs> do you think, do you think that's what lo- was your problem in 2015? Do you, did you feel like you were uh, racing it too early? Yeah. I mean, among no, no, I, I don't okay. think so, but I, definitely in many races, you know, you get, I mean, you, and you just said that maybe your realization is that you can chill in the middle of races, but as we just said with Tyler and Nick, maybe you chill a little earlier, bro. (laughs) And then you, and then you hit the cast from the very beginning. Yeah. 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 So anyway, well, well, kudos to you, man. It was an awesome performance and thank goodness we were all able to watch it. And it was so cool to see your, your energy and enthusiasm coming over the line for another golden ticket. And you've now secured three golden tickets in the last four years to Western States. And it's a pretty remarkable bit of consistency you've had with golden ticket races. <laughs> and um, I'm wondering what you attribute that, that impressive percentage to the one year that you didn't get into Western States was last year when you wrote that article yeah. for rabbit. Uh, where yeah. you failed to get your golden ticket at Bandera, but 18, 19, and now 21, you've gotten tickets to Western States. Why, why is it that you think you've shown up so well at golden ticket races? Is it just training or? <clears throat> yeah, I think there's probably uh, several factors. I mean, for one thing, Debo, I, I'd rather be known for being, you know, seventh, fifth, and third three consecutive years at Western States, and, <laughs> and I didn't have to race my way in every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's kind of a weird thing to like be good at, you know, because it's yeah. like I'm good enough to compete at these races that'll get you into Western States, and I think I'm good enough to like compete at Western States, but that hasn't been true yet. Um, so it's kind of this weird in between where like. I'm good. It's almost like being like regionally competitive versus nationally competitive. Uh, you know, it's like, I mean, I'm, I'm a good ultra runner, yeah. but I'm not the best. Yeah. Um, and like the way I always describe it to people is like to have a really good race, a lot, like pretty much everything has to go right for me. Like there are guys, um, like Steven Kirsch, he was seventh at Western States last year. He actually had quite a lot go wrong and he moved very slowly over the last 20, 30 miles, but he still got seventh. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's because Steven's a lot better than me Mm -hmm. as a runner. Like if I had all those things go wrong, no way I'm getting seventh. I'm getting 78th or I'm not finishing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, uh, over a hundred kilometers, which 
well, Lake Sonoma is no longer uh, a golden ticket race, but I, one of my golden tickets is from Lake Sonoma, but call it six to eight hours of racing. There's a lot less time for things to go wrong. Um, once you start talking about 14, 15, 16 hours of racing, it's a lot of time for stuff to go wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think in my assessment of it, looking back, I wasn't experienced enough at the hundred mile distance. I, pr I probably should have run some hundreds before Western States to like really do well at Western States. But I think that there were just things I didn't know and that I had to learn through experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned the hard way, I guess you could say, but I think I know what those things are now. I, I think I know how to adjust so that um, I can mitigate kind of those things going poorly so that I can, things can go well and, and I can have a good race. It's interesting. I think it's, also potentially a psychological thing for you too, that maybe you could think about philosophically over the next couple of months. Cause for sure. you say that you question whether you necessarily have it to perform at Western States, but in 2018, you were in podium contention before you had like a, a big implosion. And of course sure. being in podium con contention midway through Western States, I mean, there's, that's, that's not, performing at Western States, obviously there's sure. a difference between being third at Forest Hill versus being third in Auburn. And in 2019, you didn't make it to the finish line, but you, in 2018, you did after an amazing vision quest where you, <laughs> you imploded and, and stuck with it though. I mean, yeah. admirably stuck with it and, and got to the goddamn finish line, which is yeah so impressive and, and so cool, uh, to see in our sport. I've just, I just love seeing it when people who are racing super hard and implode still, yeah. still make it to the finish. So, you know, with looking ahead now towards Western States with those two pieces of experience, one, two, two races that admittedly went horribly for you. One where you had a glimpse of what you're capable of, uh, where, you know, ultimately it went very poorly near the end and a second experience where you didn't even make it to the finish line. How have those two experiences at Western States sort of um, influenced how you're going to be thinking about the race over the next couple of months and how you approach the race itself? Yeah. Um, I was actually talking to uh, Jared Hazen about this the other day and <laughs> the way I put it was um, I think I know the adjustments I need to make to do well at Western States. I just wish I didn't have to make them. <laughs> like I wish I could race Western States. Like I race black Canyon. Um, but I, I, I can't. And I think that's a lot. That's largely what I learned from those experiences, um, at Western States the last couple of years. So I think for me, I've got to, I've got to be willing to accept less risk for a higher probability of success. Um, now, uh, you know, you, you hope that your fitness, even in that case, puts you in a place where you can be maybe, you know, the middle of the top 10 or something, even, even at the end. But I think I just need to accept that, like, maybe, uh, I need to get one on the board. You know what I mean? Like I, I give me 10th play. Like if you gave me a 90% chance of getting third or a hundred percent chance of getting 10th, I would take 10th this upcoming year. Like Dude. I just need to get a good one on the board. And like, then I can go for it. If I really think that like the stars are going to align, you know, bro, it's such a good point. And that's the exact language that I used before trans grand Canaria last year, where I was coming off a year of complete 
awful devastation, injury, depression, personal issues, just one thing after another where I was convinced my career was over and that I was going to need to (laughs) figure out what the hell to do with my life and and time. And uh, yeah, before Trans Grand Canaria, my total focus and objective was like, just go have a solid one. Just don't make mistakes. Do what you know how to do. You've done 50 plus of these already. (laughs) Just go put one on the board. And because of that mentality, you know, I was able to run a really smart race and and get a great race through the field and finish third place, which personally I felt like outperformed my, my fitness and my confidence level at the time. And it was all because of that approach. And, and literally I use that exact language of just go put one on the board. (laughs) That's great. That's your challenge for this year. So give us a glimpse into the Flagstaff contingents, Western States training camp. I think things are probably starting to ramp up here. Of course, we're still dealing with COVID and it's not, uh, not a typical sort of uh ramp up where you maybe think about doing another race between now and then but how are you guys looking at training uh both you personally and, and the group itself yeah i don't i think everybody i don't think anyone's racing between now and states so um i mean obviously states is a focus race i mean that's the big one but yeah i think just too many other variables right like with respect to trying to race between now and then um, the good news is all, all the fellas, uh, have gotten a shot in the arm. So we're, um, we're good to, you know, hanging out with ourselves is cool. Um, like going to <laughs> meeting up to go on runs is okay again, which is, which is exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I'll speak to me first. I think one thing I've lacked, uh, preparing for Western States the last couple of years is, is vertical gain. Um, I don't think I've done enough of that in the past and it, it's, uh, I would call it a weakness of mine in terms of my skill set. Like, um, I think I run downhill comparatively better than I run uphill, for example, mm-hmm. uh, in compared to my competition. Um, I can get dropped a lot easier on an uphill than a downhill. So I think for me that that's going to be a big focus. Um, like last week I had 16,000 feet, uh, avert. That's the most I've gotten probably in like two years. So I, I think I need to do a lot of that, um, to try to, yeah, just get better at it. Uh, and even though it's not necessarily like a mountainous ray, I mean, you know, there's 15, 16,000 feet of climbing. Um, it's flattish, but I mean, that's still a lot of climbing. So I need to be better at that. So, that, so that's something I'm trying to work on, um, between now and, and race day. And there, you know, if you're trying to get 20,000 feet of vert in a week, like the consequences you're running a hundred miles, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the volume's going to be there. Yeah. I'm just trying to focus a little more uh, on like time and vert and not so much on, on mileage. That just is what it is. Um, so I, I, I think, I think we got a recipe for success, but we'll see. Um, but I mean, the, the rest of the guys, man, they, it's just, is it, they, they, they already have their recipe, right? Like all those guys have been top 10. Yeah. Um, they, I mean, you've got two guys who have run the two fat to the fat to the two fastest times ever on the course. Yeah. Um, yeah, you got Steven who debuted by running fifteen fifty or whatever it was, which is like yeah. it's very fast. Yeah. Um so so I, I feel like everybody kind of knows what they need to do. Um and I think for those guys it's yeah, it's a it's a mix of I don't know how they think about it, but it's a mix of, you know, mileage vert and I think specific terrain. Like yeah. um getting up to the Grand Canyon, like getting down to Sedona into the the heat and in, in the canyons down there. And yeah, like I said, we have every opportunity uh, available to us to be ready for a race like Western States. Like 
Yeah. No excuses there. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see how your guys' crew does. I think it would be amazing to see all four of you guys in the top 10. I think Man, that's absolutely that'd be so something. cool. I mean, and just to echo what you said earlier, I mean, Flagstaff is the place to train for Western States because yeah. you have the heat, you have the altitude, you have the downhill in the canyon, and you got the community. And I think yep. that's a lot of the reason why we've seen. I think five of the last six years, the men's champion has come out of Flagstaff, Arizona, between Jim Walmsley twice, Rob Carr twice, and Andrew Miller. Yep. When he was living there. Dude, um, crazy. So like in terms of training though, I mean, one of the things I'm curious about is I haven't looked at Jim's training for a while on Strava, but obviously everybody knows he trains like an absolute animal. Jared does too, though he doesn't really publish it. I know he's got a reputation for always being like a pretty maximally high volume type trainer. Um, When you're training in that type of environment with those types of guys, do you feel any sort of uh, pressure to maybe do excessive amounts of training or (laughs) risky, risky levels of training? Do you, do you have a coach and uh, how do you manage to do intelligent amounts of training without going overboard when, when you're training in that type of a group? Yeah. Um, ooh, that, there, there's a lot of ways to approach that question, Debo. I think, uh, I mean, part of me, this will sound crazy. I don't know if this is crazy, but p- part of me thinks maybe I don't care enough like about it. Like if I cared the, the maximum amount, like I would run way more. Um, I don't think that's true, but no, uh, so, sometimes that occurs to me. Like maybe I just need to care well, more. Dude, look, look at, I mean, look at Tyler, <laughs> look at Tyler. I mean, he's got a, his coach is Matt Lay and yep. he and doesn't do, he doesn't do ridiculous training. I mean, when I talked to Brittany Peterson after black Canyon, she said she was doing 50, 60 mile weeks leading up to black Canyon. So I think there's, there's more than one way to do it. Obviously, totally when you're trying to race like, like Jim is, and I think Jared has a similar personality in that, um, you know, they want to, I don't know, have zero margin for error. Right. right. And, and this is right. like a hundred percent commitment. Yeah. Uh, but not a lot of people can, yeah, can sustain that level of work without right. getting injured or completely burned out. Exactly. Myself included. I mean, yeah. I'll say myself yeah. included. Yeah. Well, and, and Jared's gotten injured. You know, 2018, he ended up with a pelvic uh, fracture before yeah. before the race um, because he was running crazy amounts. Yeah, I think. Uh, well, so yeah, to, to answer the question more directly, I guess. Um, so Ian, I I'm a coach with Sundog Running, uh, which is Ian and Emily Torrance's uh, coaching business. Um, and I talked to Ian quite a bit about this sort of thing. Um, well, yeah, training just obviously in general, but like yeah. Western States in particular. Um, and then I, I just, I think if you, when you're in this, I think hearing from a lot of people is helpful mm-hmm. and, and it can give you a better perspective on like what works or what doesn't. Right. Um, so like I talked to Pat Reagan about training. I talked to Chris Brown about training. I talked to Jared and Steven and Jim, like, I t- I just talked to, I want to hear what everyone thinks. Um, and then you can kind of like, is, is the same thing isn't going to work best for everybody. Right. Like everybody, you kind of got a, it's a little bit of trial and error. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> I think I, like I said, I think I've found a, a recipe that, 
uh, work. I've, I've obviously found it for certain races. Like I know how to get ready for black Canyon. Yeah. Like any year I want to run black Canyon, I I'm pretty sure I can get myself in shape to like be top three. You've proven um, that, yeah. yeah. So, so I think, yeah, I think with Western States, like, it's just, again, a little bit of a learning curve, new distance. Um, like that, I think that's a big part of it. Like, cause there's a lot more variables, but I think I'm learning. And I mean, something I said earlier in terms of like training with, with, these guys that are running so much volume, you just have to do this really, at least me, I can't speak for everyone, but I just have to do this really weird thing in my head where like, I just spin it to like, somehow it's my advantage. Like, uh, he's going to be tired or like, <laughs> Oh, well, you know, if he's running that hard in training, he's leaving his race and train Like yeah. you just sort of tell yourself these stories that yeah. probably aren't true, but like it, it allows you to keep doing what you need to do. Right. Yeah. And not get like sucked into everybody else yeah i think comparison can be conducive to to growth sort of and what we've talked about and having training partners who really do push you to be much better than you would be on your own but yeah when you're training with jim walmsley and jared hazen who are two of two of the best in the world and the two fastest guys to ever run the course yeah it'd be easy to sort of feel like not worthy or <laughs> that you have no chance against them, but having, having some trust that, you know, yourself well. And I think reaching out to a person like Ian Torrance is a brilliant move for you because, you know, he's an absolute legend in the game and a great coach and a good person and somebody who's run hundreds of ultra marathons himself. So. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> well, crazy. Dude, I'm so stoked for you. I'm really excited to, to see you and the, the whole Flagstaff contingent descend upon squaw again. We're, we're going to see out there. Yeah. Hell yeah, good. you will. Hell good, yeah, good, you good, will. Good, good, and, um, yeah, uh, I've got some fun things planned there. I'll, I'll just cool. say that. And, cool. and sort of uh, in, a, in a similar vein, I want to talk a little bit about uh, another awesome thing that you did this spring, not long after Black Canyon. That was the commentary at the Hoka. Yeah. Uh, Project Carbon X uh, 100K that you guys did in Arizona. And you had done this before in California for yep. the 50 mile race. And you're a total natural, man. You do such a good job Thanks. with the, with the commentary and, uh, and analysis. And of course, like having a personal relationship with Jim and knowing sort of the training that he's putting in, uh, I think adds a little bit of depth to, to those events in particular, but I wondered if you wanted to comment at all about what you've learned from, um, doing the, the coverage responsibilities about sort of the media side of our sport and, um, anything you think that maybe we can do better as a sport to enhance the, uh, fan experience. For sure. Yeah. I think, um, it's exciting what's going on. You know, it, it was, uh, so project carbon X two was actually, um, three weeks before black Canyon. Um, so oh, it was before, know, yeah, it was just before. Yeah, uh, and I only mentioned that not to correct you, Debo, <laughs> um, okay. but because, you know, three weeks after that, you got 10 hours of live coverage of a, of a red black oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. which was, yeah. You know, after the eight hours of live coverage at project carbon X two, like yeah. in less than a month. And like, there's been, I don't know, maybe only a handful of broadcasts of that nature in ultra running before that. Um, So that, I mean, it's very exciting because I think the sport is, uh, I mean, certainly underdeveloped on the media side. I think part of uh, that is due to the nature of the sport. It's much more challenging to follow a race through the, you know, Sierra Nevadas than it is to 
uh, watch guys go around a track or run through the streets of New York or whatever. Yeah. So, so the, those challenges of course require uh, certain logistics that cost money. Um, and, and of course the sport being smaller, being a little more fringe, hasn't historically had a lot of money, um, to invest in that sort of thing. So, you know, fast forward and you have a, these brands that are really investing in the sport, uh, in, in media outlets that are, you know, kind of popping up as a result. And, uh, you're starting to see that and it's, it's super cool. And I, I think there's a lot of people who can speak, um, intelligently about the sport, uh, they just, you know, don't have the opportunity to because <laughs> there aren't such opportunities. Uh, and, and the more the more that can happen, I think the better going back to earlier, you know, when when we were talking and I said, I, I really love that the sport's growing. And like, you know, you can just thinking that like there are these people out there that were just like you 10 years ago. And like they there are more people have an opportunity to be inspired by this stuff. Like, it's so cool. Um, just to be some small part of that, uh, I think is, I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, so yeah, I, to, to condense the answer though, I guess, I I think what's being done is being done really well. Um, I just think that, uh, yeah, hopefully it becomes available more and more as, as we grow. 100%. Well, yeah, good job uh, with the Project Carbon X. You did an amazing job. You enhanced my experience as a a viewer. And then kudos again on on Black Canyon where you were the athlete. And uh, again, my my experience as a viewer was very positive. And you were involved in both of those in two different ways. So it's really cool, man. Um, But dude, thanks so much. This has been an absolute pleasure to chat and catch up and congratulations on the nuptials again. I hope you guys have a nice, uh, maybe honeymoon planned. You know, I, people have been asking, I said, (laughs) this is going to sound maybe lame, but like, Our whole life's a honeymoon. Exactly. We get to go around and Come do what on. we want. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. I try and convince my wife that too. And just, <laughs> maybe someday we'll go on a vacation where you aren't running some yeah. ridiculous yeah. race. I think Jackie and her yeah. should talk. She might have a few uh, things <laughs> to say about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, congratulations, man. And good luck in the final buildup to Western States. I guess we got about two and a half months to go. Yep. And um, look forward to seeing you there, if not beforehand. Likewise, Debo, it's been a, a, a pleasure to be on and an honor ever, ever since you started this podcast. I was like, man, hopefully I can be on Debo's <laughs> podcast someday. So uh, I appreciate it. The first of many, I hope. All right, yeah, bro. for sure. Thanks All right, so Debo. much. Okay. How was it? I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode. Thanks so much to Eric for being such a rad guest. If you don't already go follow Eric on Instagram, I have a link to his profile in the show notes. And I also linked to the article he wrote in 2020 for his main sponsor rabbit that we talked about in the conversation. I think it's definitely worth your time. So go click through that link and give it a read. Uh, If you do enjoy the show and want to support it. As I mentioned at the top of the show, the best thing you can do is go download and subscribe to the Pillars app. Subscription is $10 a month, uh, but you can try it for seven days risk-free. And if you want to be part of the community, but you can't afford it, just send me an email, dylanitpillars.com, and I would be 
beyond happy to just hook you up with a free subscription. But if you can spare it, that's what's going to keep this podcast up and running free and ad free. Uh, So we do depend on listener support. So if you can spare it, please do subscribe. I don't think you'll regret it. And if you do, we'll figure out a way to get you your money back. I promise. But it's been so fun. And I just genuinely want you all all of you who listen to this podcast, at least give it a shot. Uh, It would mean a lot to me. And if you don't mind, please, if you have 30 seconds to spare, consider leaving us a rating review in Apple Podcasts. It honestly only takes a couple of seconds and it does make a big difference. Thank you guys so much. That's it for now. I appreciate you always being here. Until next time, love you so much. Bye-bye.